This Washington Post Live podcast is presented in partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, advancing new frontiers of science, data, policy, and innovation to solve global challenges related to health, food, power, and equity and economic opportunity. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Commissioned by the Rockefeller Foundation, a first-of-its-kind report by the Duke Margolis Center and Johns Hopkins Center provides COVID testing protocols for health officials and schools. The key players join the Post to discuss strategies for a safe reopening. Let's listen. Good morning, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter for The Fix at the Washington Post, and I'd like to welcome our first guest this morning. Assistant Health Secretary at HHS and a member of President Trump's Coronavirus Task Force, Admiral Brett Jirwa. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, good morning. It's great to be here with you this morning. Thanks for the invitation. And I got that correct, right, Jirwa? You know, um, I'm from uh, deep down in the Bayou country in Louisiana, and that's pretty pretty darn close. So that's a, a great first, great first uh, try at that. Okay, great, great. Well, Admiral, you are the White House testing czar and lead developer of the HHS-wide uh, public health policy uh, recommendations. So I was hoping you could give us a bit of an overview of the current situation on the ground today. So um, the situation on the ground with the pandemic, um, um, I, I think uh, everyone understands that similar to where we were post Memorial Day, we have had a significant increase in the number of cases. Uh, The hospitalizations are starting to go up as well as, uh, unfortunately, some of the fatalities. Um, We do, however, uh, know how to uh, defeat the pandemic, to control it until the time we can get vaccines. And you've heard this so many times before, but physically distancing is incredibly important. Wearing this mask when you can't physically distance is really essential. Now, the American people have done a really good job. We we do rank among the top in the world in mask wearing, but we've got to get better, um, as well as doing the good hand hygiene. And, and with all this, we have to have a program of smart testing, and I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about that uh, today. Um, we do have the power to control this. We saw how we did it in Arizona, in Florida, in Texas, across the Sun Belt. But we are really at a really important point in this pandemic right now where cases are going up, where there's community spread. Um, We've done a great job in certain aspects, like protecting the elderly. But if there's high community spread, it's going to be hard to continue that. So number one message today, those three W's are incredibly important. Don't get fatigued by them. Wear the mask when you can't physically distance. Physically distance, avoid indoor crowds. Wash your hands and please be tested when you're asked to be tested because uh, about 75% of people, at least 50% and up to 75% of people with the virus can be completely asymptomatic. And the only way you know you have it is to get tested. And the only way you could prevent spreading it is by wearing a mask when you can't physically distance. That's good to know. Um, As you noted, uh, we are seeing some changes in terms of uh, infections and even fatalities. Uh, On Friday, the U.S. recorded a record single-day high of more than 83,000 new cases. And Saturday was just 39 cases short of the previous mark. Uh, Is this a reflection of expanded testing or a fall surge? So um, compared uh, let me answer that in two different ways. Um, 
I think we're very comparable to what was going on in July and August. So testing may be identifying uh, some more cases. I think that's clearly true. But what we're seeing is a real increase in the numbers. Now, back in March and April, we were probably only detecting one out of 10 or every one out of every 15 cases. So you can't really compare today to back in March and April. But compared to the post-Memorial Day surge, um, even though testing is up, th this is a real increase in cases. Um, we know that not only because the case numbers are up and we can calculate that, but we know that hospitalizations are going up. But to put it in perspective, there are many areas, there are several areas of the country where hospital, uh, hospitals are becoming full and being stressed. But we're still at about 41,000 people in the hospital with coronavirus compared to a high of 76,000 in July. So, uh, you know, we, we really have a mixed picture, but we are tenuous now. We really have to re-engage the public health measures that we know works or those hospitalizations can go up su substantially. Um, the good things that we know is uh, a lot more younger people are getting it than older people, which is one reason why the hospitalizations are shorter. And we do have some effective therapies um, that we can apply against it, but there's, there's nothing that we're gonna do um, that's better than preventing infections in the first place. Um, and those are those public health measures we talked about until we get a vaccine. Uh, vaccines are coming. We are very encouraged that there are now four open phase three trials. Preliminary data look good, but um, this is not gonna be here tomorrow. We may get the first vaccines out uh, this year. We're certainly hopeful for that. Uh, we're hopeful that they would be useful in screening uh, the elderly, for example, protecting the elderly uh, and the most vulnerable. So even if we only have a few million vaccines, we might get most of the benefit. But uh, the American people will not be fully immunized, even if everything goes well, at least until mid-2021. So we have to be very disciplined about our mask wearing, avoiding crowds, particularly around the holidays. It doesn't have to be hundreds of people, but you know, a family gathering of 20 or 25 or 30 um, still means that we have to be careful about our interactions, about our hygiene, and particularly if there are vulnerable people within our family. Admiral, Admiral, we have heard uh, that the pandemic is putting a new strain on local healthcare systems. Does the federal government uh, have a plan to get resources to these areas in need? Uh, there's been some talk of rationing care. So um, the, I, I would like to just put it, put an end to those kinds of rumors because um, there is no need to ration care. Uh, we are in a tremendous supply situation now compared to March or April. Um, whereas uh, I'm not gonna say one hospital on one day does not have a certain type of PPE, but we know uh, that almost every state has a 60 to 90 day uh, storage of PPE within that state, in addition to all that we have in the national stockpile. Um, we have 150,000 ventilators in the national stockpile. Uh, we monitor drugs on a daily basis. So the idea of rationing care is really uh, not one that's in any way close to reality. We have the resources to have care for all who need it. Um, now, let me say in certain areas. Uh, he froze. He froze on my. Or. Uh, are working uh, with uh, a public health service, which I represent. So it, we had a little momentary lapse. Do you have me now? Uh, I have you now. Uh, you can continue. We'll see if it keeps going. Okay. 
uh, we had a little uh, connection failure. But uh, hopefully, hopefully your viewers heard that there, there is no idea or thought of rationing care. Uh, we have the PPE. Most states have a 60 to 90 day stockpile. We have 150,000 ventilators in the stockpile. Um, we're only about 60% of hospitalization levels that we were in, in, in uh, July. So we have a lot of room in the system, but in certain areas, we know the hospitals are getting tight uh, in Texas and Wisconsin, and we are sending not only physical resources, but manpower resources to those areas too. So there, there is no concept of rationing care at this point in time. We have plenty of resources and we actually have leeway in the system to absorb the care. Now, um, as a pediatrician, um, I, I'm always gonna emphasize prevention. And although we have those resources, uh, our best weapon is to wear a mask, physically distance and wash your hands and prevent those infections from going up. We don't wanna get in a situation where we're taxing the hospital system. Our goal is to minimize the people in hospitals, not see how many we can take care of. So uh, again, everybody has the power to prevent uh, infections and to save lives by doing those three W's, watch your distance, uh, wear a mask and wash your hands. Speaking of uh, those three W's, or at least two of them, wear a mask and uh, you know watch your distance. Uh, there has been another outbreak at the White House, as you know. Five aides to Vice President Pence have tested positive. And on Sunday, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows said that the administration has stopped trying to control the pandemic. Uh, his quote was, we're not going to control the pandemic. We're going to control the fact that we get vaccines, therapeutics, and other mitigations. Uh, despite emphasis on vaccines, there is little indication we will have one until at least the middle of next year. And you talked about that a bit. And so how do you reconcile that message that we're getting from the White House with what you and the task force are telling Americans to do? So um, I, I'm not inside Chief Meadows' head, but I did read all the quotes, and, and I think he's being misconstrued because he did talk about um, controlling through mitigation, through wearing a mask, through all those issues. So um, I, I do believe that what he that's what he meant, but instead of trying to figure out what he meant, I just want to be straight with the listeners that we are not going to completely defeat the virus until we get a vaccine, and that vaccine is distributed to the American people uh, and we build up herd immunity in the appropriate way by getting a vaccine to have immunity. But there are things we can do right now to control the spread. We've done it in Arizona, Florida, Texas, all across the deep south. Those are the public health measures that I've, you know, I've spoken repeatedly about already. Um, you saw at the White House last night that there was physical distancing and everyone had to wear a mask and that's very good. And we want everybody to channel that. Now, in terms of vaccines, um, uh, I think we need to, clarify, I think all of us understand that most Americans will not get their vaccine until mid-2021 because we have hundreds of millions of people to vaccinate, and depending on the vaccine, most will need two doses. But we do expect and are very hopeful that we will have millions of doses within the year 2020. It won't be before it's time. They have to be proven safe and efficacious, but we are hopeful that we will get a read on that um, later this year. And even though there only will be a few million doses that could be available, we could get 50, 70, 80% of the benefit from that uh, in terms of mortality. If, for example, the vaccines work in elderly, we saw a good report of the Moderna vaccine being highly effective uh, in older adults and in, in having an immune response. So even if we could just uh, immunize our healthcare workers, our vulnerable individuals, 
we might be able to save 80% of the lives just by those few millions of doses. So, um, you know, a lot of this is nuanced. Yes, 300 million Americans probably won't get immunized until mid next year, but we, we could immunize the most critical ones this year, assuming uh, the trials continue uh, positively. No, we cannot absolutely defeat the virus until we have a vaccine, but we can certainly control the spread, flatten the curve and save lives. Everybody can do that. You don't need to be a scientist or a vaccine expert. You just need to wear a mask, remind people around you to wear a mask, physically distance, avoid indoor crowded spaces. And even over the holidays, I'm not a party pooper, but having 20 or 30 or 40 people at your house for Thanksgiving without appropriate precautions and being careful, um, that could be a recipe for a spread too. So I'm not saying throw grandma out in the cold and not bring her in, but I am saying be very careful about your hygiene, hand washing, physically distance if you can, uh, particularly those who are very vulnerable, uh, that will save lives and save your family. Um, speaking of the need to be very careful, as you recall, we closed bars and restaurants and other businesses earlier this year uh, when we saw numbers that are pretty comparable to what we're beginning to see again. Do you believe we need to go back to that and, and ramp up coronavirus restrictions? Um, so we saw in Arizona and in Texas and Florida and the Sun Belt um, and in the Deep South that if people are very disciplined, and what I mean by disciplined, if we have mask wearing, that's 85, 90% when you can't physically distance. If you limit uh, 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 bars and indoor dining to a certain percent, outdoor is fine, um, and you have surge testing, uh, uh, particularly of those who could be asymptomatic and spreading, that that is effectively the same as shutting down the economy. However, if we don't do those things, lawmakers are gonna get pressed against the wall to have those draconian measures that none of us want. Because when you do shut things down, people don't get cancer screenings. Uh, children don't go to school. Uh, they don't learn. Uh, people have emotional uh, and sub uh, issues, mental health issues. Uh, substance uh, misuse goes up. There's increased suicides. So there's a whole chain of bad health effects that occur with, quote, a shutdown. And these have to be weighed because they're real. The bottom line is, if we have high mask wearing, if we do limit the indoor crowded spaces, and, and, and like bars and like indoor crowded restaurants, uh, we have appropriate testing. We won't have to do those measures. But um, unless we turn the current situation around, uh, lawmakers at the local level and at the state level are gonna feel compelled that that's their last resort. We want it to be the last resort because there's gonna be a great physical and emotional harm done by that. But if it's the last resort, it's the last resort, but we're not there yet. And I think if we continue um, to, to spread the message um, about what you can do to stop this, like we've done in many localities before, you know, that's where we wanna be. We, we don't wanna be anywhere else. We can flatten the curve, we can slow the spread, we could save lives by doing the simple public health measures until we can absolutely defeat the virus by widespread vaccination. That really is the plan that we need to try to stick to um, and avoid the sort of draconian measures if possible. That's gonna be on a, on a city by city basis, a state by state basis, because it's very different in New York and Massachusetts than it is from Wisconsin or El Paso right now. Every community is different. Every community has different risk factors, uh, diff different social vulnerabilities, 
it, it's very complex. That's why you can't just wave a wand nationally. It really needs to be done at the community level, um, and we're supporting that in the best way we can. That last part takes me to a question from one of our uh, audience members, Charles Steffel from Minnesota wants to know, uh, will we require a national social distancing and indoor mask mandate? So um, I, I, uh, I haven't been elected to any office, so uh, it's certainly not my decision uh, about which way to go. I can say it's been the policy of the administration thus far to respect the local uh, authorities in this regard. Um, I think there's a good argument to say that if the if the if the federal government mandated something, number one, it could never be enforceable, and number two, it might actually create adverse uh, behaviors or different behaviors than we want to do. So it has been the policy of the administration to respect what the state and locals want to do. I can tell you from a public health point of view that we need to increase mask wearing. We absolutely need to do that. There is no question we need to do that. That is essential to flattening the curve. And we need to uh, avoid indoor crowded spaces. How that needs to get done is really on a community by community basis. Um, some communities may choose to mandate that. We support that. Other communities may say we need massive educational campaigns because mandating it would give us the opposite behavior that we want because some people are like that. We're seeing that all over Europe where there's protest against the mandate and we're getting the opposite behavior. So um, this has been stressful for everyone. We've been under an incredible strain as this pandemic. Uh, we've been at this full time since last January. The American people are also under strain. And um, you know, I do believe from a public health standpoint, uh, public health has always been a, a local measure where people in the community work with the community. I can tell you what we need to have happen, like we need to have 85 or 90% of people wearing masks if we're gonna flatten it. How that gets done, uh, we support the local communities, whether that's a mandate, um, whether that's massive education, whether that's working with children, whether that's doing something with the elderly. Uh, but we're telling you what the end result has to be. Uh, the best way to get there, we believe, is best done by the local mayors, uh, county judges, and governors. I would like to go to another question uh, from an audience member, Victoria Moser from Michigan, uh, wants to know, uh, with top administration and endless others disregarding basic pandemic safe behavior and cross-country incidents resurgence, virus death containment seems utterly impossible. Does compliance to CDC guidelines for the rest of us actually make a difference and, and how? Yeah, thank you so much for asking the question. I, I really appreciate that because that really gets at the heart of the matter. Um, you know, none of us are 100% omniscient, but the data are very clear that people who are asymptomatic can spread the virus. And doing something simple like wearing a mask greatly reduces transmission from one person to the next person. We have seen this, whether you want to look at the micro level like the uh, hair, uh, hairdressers who took care of, I believe, 129 clients, two of them, while they were hot sick with coronavirus, but both their clients and their, they wore a mask, and what you saw was no transmission of the virus. We saw, and it's very well studied in Arizona, where these simple measures really do make a difference. Um, we see uh, time and time again, uh, even summer camps, where uh, uh, masks were required uh, the transmission was minimal. We see at daycare centers 
uh, across Rhode Island and many other places. That transmission is absolutely minimal when we do these public health measures. So I, I want to assure the American people that we have to we have to keep our guard up. That this is this is not futile. This is a, a great weapon against this pandemic. You can save a life. You can save multiple lives because if you infect one person, that person can infect two people and two, two more people and two other people. Um, so these measures really do work and avoid crowds when you can. You know, if you're in an area where they're spread and you can telework, telework, um, um, don't have the crowded indoor spaces. There's nothing magical about a bar except it's crowded, it's indoor, people are drinking, they don't have masks on. But if you have a house party with 100 people, it's gonna be the same difference. So it doesn't matter where the crowd is, where the indoor space is. Make good choices. Outdoors versus indoors, smaller gatherings versus uh, larger gatherings. Good ventilation when you can. Always wear a mask when you can't physically distance. These things really do matter. And I forget your name, but I really am so happy you asked that question because we, we've got to keep this up. We only have a few more months to go, but that few more months could be a difference between 100,000 or more people dying and not having that, having those people alive until we get a vaccine. We have the power to do it and we have to keep our guard up and have to keep our discipline. I want to talk a bit about a project you're working on that's really interesting. Uh, you're helping to coordinate a new pilot testing program uh, in four select cities uh, in Rhode Island, I believe, with guidance from John Hopkins and the Duke uh, Margolis Center. Uh, we are going to get into the finer details of the protocols in the next segment, but I was hoping uh, you would explain how the federal government is involved uh, with providing point of care or rapid tests uh, for Americans. Sure. So um, we announced a few weeks ago that we would provide 150 million point of care tests on um, these simple uh, card-based tests called Binax now, very easy, result in 15 minutes, no need an instrument. We've already shipped over 36 million of these um, to the vulnerable, about a third to the vulnerable in nursing homes, assisted living, historically black colleges and universities and tribes, and two thirds of those over 25 million to states that they can use uh, to reopen their schools and keep them open and to also support other critical infrastructure. So this is actually happening now. It's a great technology. It's a very sophisticated technology, but it's only five bucks a test with a result in five minutes, uh, 15 minutes. What we're doing on the pilot program, we're very excited about it. Um, the federal government doesn't work in a vacuum and, and, and hopefully everyone understands this. The way this works is by working with the private sector, the academic sector, the nonprofit sector, and the Rockefeller Foundation has been a great partner, as well as Duke Margulies and other universities. I mean, we work together, we talk to each other, we have forums together, uh, and the Rockefeller and Duke have been um, very involved in helping school districts try to develop plans to reopen schools, because as we've talked about before, when children are not in school, they have severe and sometimes irreversible uh, deficits in their emotional and intellectual health. Uh, at these very critical times. Um, child abuse doesn't get reported. People don't get their health screenings, their hearing screenings. So getting kids in school is very important. Rockefeller and Duke have been supporting that. So we partnered with them um, to provide them, uh, I believe the number to start with is about uh, 120,000 of the Binax tests um, that they're gonna be uh, using in multiple school districts. We know that they're gonna be in Los Angeles, in Louisville, in New Orleans, in Tulsa and in Rhode Island. 
and there's another major school district that we hope gets announced this week that I can't talk about, but we're supplying um, the actual Binax test uh, to the Rockefeller and to Duke to distribute through the school system and to test different best practices. Um, we've never been in a pandemic like this in modern times. Uh, we're bringing children back to school. There's a number of possible ways to use these tests. They could certainly be used for symptomatic children and contacts right there on the spot. They can be used to test teachers every week or twice a week. They can be used for screening. And we really want to support the academic and the nonprofit sector who are working directly with these school districts to understand how to best utilize these. Um, we don't have time to wait six months. That's why we're distributing them and we're testing them at the same time. We know the test performance, they work very well. How to best utilize them, we wanna optimize. And that's what we're doing with the Rockefeller, with Duke Margulies, and with these school districts around the, uh, the country who have very interesting pioneering kind of thoughts. And we wanna make sure that we can share best practices around the country. So that's what this is about. Uh, the federal government working together with the nonprofit sector like Rockefeller, the academic sector like Duke, in all our local school districts uh, working together the way it, the way it's really meant to be. We're all on the same team here uh, to get the same results. Well, thanks so much for sharing uh, that with us. We'll keep our eyes open for that. Uh, but I'm afraid that's all the time we have left for this segment. And so thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, we wanna reach the American people. Remember those public health messages. You can do a lot to control this pandemic. Uh, and I'm happy to be on any time you want me. Thanks for the great questions. Thanks to the viewers for the great questions. Thank you again. And we'll be right back with senior scholar from Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, Caitlin Rivers, and founding director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University, Dr. Mark McClellan. Stick with us. Hello, I'm Elise Labitt of American University, and we're talking today about why safely reopening schools is a national priority to prevent further spread of COVID-19 and how we get there. And I am thrilled to be joined by Raj Shah, president of the Rockefeller Foundation, which is leading these pilot testing protocols for K-12 schools in four cities and one state across the country that really have the potential to inform decisions right now on widespread testing. Raj, it's really great to have you. Thank you, Elise. It's great to be with you. Well, you know, I think the decision whether to send our kids back to school has really been one of the most controversial in the debate about reopening the country because, you know, right now, most of the nation's school children haven't returned to classrooms this fall. We see the strain this is putting on families, employers, and most importantly, the kids. But I think all parents want to know if, if it's safe to send their kids back to school, especially with these new surges. Well, you know, I'm a parent of three kids in elementary, middle, and high school, and I can tell you that uh, we've looked carefully as an institution, Rockefeller has, around the world. And as they've done in much of Europe, as they've done in much of Asia, uh, as they continue to do in uh, parts of Africa and Latin America, schools should be open in America for K through 12 education. Now, if you said, you know, is it safe for everybody today? The answer, unfortunately, is probably not. Uh, the reality is schools that are better resourced, uh, private schools and some public schools that just have the financial resources and the community support to put in place the practices that work to keep kids 
faculty and staff safe are able to be open. And that's why we see across the nation, uh, private schools largely open in some form. In some states, you, know, you see very large numbers of public schools open in some forms. The reality is we know what to do to keep schools open. It's a matter of making the investment, putting the policy in place and making sure that education in this country is not just a privilege for those who can spend thirty, forty thousand dollars a year uh, for private education, but frankly, for every single American as it's supposed to be. Well, and I think, you know, you've been and Rockefeller has been clear that like it's kind of like a domino effect with when you open up a when you open up a school, then you're helping with the employer, then you're helping with the child care because schools really being the heart of the community. Well, that's right. Schools are the heart of the community. Schools are critical for the education of our kids and the next generation. And frankly, schools are important to get the local economy going because you need those parents to be freed up to be able to participate in their work, whether it's virtual and online or uh, if they're essential workers, you know, out and about in the in the broader economy. And the reality is COVID-19 is going to be with us. It's going to be with us for many, many months still, maybe longer. And we have to figure out how to manage through it. Now, when I say schools can be open, that's a judgment based on real data. We know from looking at 1,100 schools in the Brown University school database that the prevalence of coronavirus showing up in schools in America is about you know, roughly one case per 1,000 kids for every two weeks that a school is open. And if you put in place the practices that Brett Gerard just mentioned work, mostly wearing masks, staying socially distant, and having plexiglass dividers and air filtration in place in a classroom, uh, you should be able to run that classroom uh, in a different way. Obviously, everyone masked and apart, uh, but you should be able to run that classroom safely for the students and safely for the teachers when the background transmission rate in schools is that low. And, uh, and that's just something Rockefeller has committed to do with public schools around the nation in partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services. And I believe if uh, the data from these early examples comes back successful, as we hope and expect it to, that America should commit itself to making sure that every American child more or less gets a chance to go to school next semester. Now, I want to talk about this recent report you have out on, you know, wide and widespread K to 12 reopening schools. The upside of this report is that testing is key. And I know that testing is uh, first is this approach that is priority for Rockefeller. And when you look at countries like New Zealand, South Korea, Germany, they were able to keep their economies and schools open because of this very strong, widespread, rapid testing plan. But when you, it comes to schools, we know that affordable testing is a challenge. So how can you make it easier for schools to do the testing so that they can reopen? Well, first, you're uh, absolutely right. Testing is the only way out if we're going to reopen schools next semester beyond the mask wearing and the social distancing I just described. And you're also right to point out that nations that have done this successfully have made broad, ubiquitous, and fast result testing uh, free and accessible to all of their people. America has not been one of those nations. And so uh, we applaud some of the actions that, that Brett uh, Girard, who just uh, spoke, has taken in terms of acquiring 150 million of these rapid antigen tests that can be deployed quickly, get you a result in 15 minutes, and cost, as he points out, $5 a test. 
you know, with if we had enough volume of that, and if we had uh, clean protocols from the Centers for Disease Control on how schools should use those kinds of tests to screen their population on a regular basis, we could actually get about the business of opening schools. The Duke Margolis Center has published such protocols after doing very careful analysis with experts around the nation. And, uh, and the answers, of course, vary depending on the community you're in and the rate of background transmission. But adding testing to the basic strategy of social distancing and mask wearing should enable schools in America to be open for nearly every kid. And as a nation, we should make that commitment to our next generation and to ourselves right now. And, and that's going to take some bold leadership right away. Okay, so we're going to hear from the authors of the report after this discussion. So I want to branch out the idea of data a bit because I know, you know, you're a data geek and I am a little bit too. Schools are at the heart of the community, as we said. You're testing students, then you're testing teachers, school administrators, and that data is a really good indicator of what's happening on a very localized level. So how does data inform these larger decisions? How do you scale that at a national and even global level? And how do you get the data? Because I feel if data is such a great indicator of government is managing the health and safety of their people, you know they don't always want to share it. So how do you get the yeah. data by convincing government it's it's a public good? Well, I think there's there's the question of making data open and accessible. But there's also the extremely practical reality that the only way you beat back a pandemic is by taking people who are contagious out of the chain of contagion. It's such a simple concept. And in America, we know that you know 50 to 60 percent of the spread is largely coming from people with symptoms and 40 to 50 percent of the spread is largely coming from people without symptoms. So if you're going to find people without symptoms who could be spreaders and take them out of the chain of transmission to, for example, keep schools safe, you need fast, rapid testing for everybody, symptoms or not, so that you're able to find those people who are potential spreaders and ask them to stay home and stay quarantined and get a confirmatory diagnostic test. And that strategy of broad screening testing or surveillance testing uh, for people who are both symptomatic and, and sort of really need it, and for those who are not showing symptoms but want to go to school, for example, is something we should put in place across America's K through 12 educational system very broadly. To do that, it takes more than just protocols. And the Duke process has been fantastic because their protocols are the only ones out there. And as as mentioned previously, we're going to test those protocols in six public school districts around the nation to make sure that we have data to demonstrate it works and to optimize them. But we also need uh, actual federal reimbursement. Uh, $5 a test may not sound like a lot, but the reality is if you're testing everyone in your school community, including faculty and staff and kids on a twice a week basis or a once a week basis, those costs add up. And when you add it to all the costs of installing plexiglass and putting in place social distancing on campus, most American schools don't have those resources. So big public funding for this effort is necessary and especially for paying for testing uh, so that the schools themselves don't have to bear that burden. And that's something we've called for and is absolutely necessary and in an urgent manner. So yesterday, Rockefeller announced a $1 billion commitment to deliver a more equitable and sustainable recovery 
Talk to me about the urgency on the equity piece, whether it's on the medical front or the economic front and where the focus of the investment is, because I'm sure you've seen, you know, even the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation saying, points out that 25 years of progress in terms of building up, you know, low income, vulnerable populations has been lost in just 25 weeks. And that's really startling. It is startling, Elise. And in fact, uh, we looked carefully at, at most major shocks and then recoveries, whether it's the Great Depression or World War II or the global financial crisis much more recently. And we see a similar trajectory, which is when the world recovers slowly, uh, people who are poor and vulnerable pay the highest price by far. And today, on a global basis, the World Bank estimates that 425 million people will be pushed back under an expanded definition of the poverty line around the world as a result of the COVID-19 economic crisis. We know in America, COVID-19 is extraordinarily inequitable. Black Americans are three to five times more likely to be hospitalized and one in 1,000 Black Americans has died from COVID-19. So, you know, we, we said to ourselves at Rockefeller that we're a 107-year-old institution. We've twice, I had nothing to do with these before my time, but twice been awarded the Nobel Prize for significant advances in science and innovation to fight inequity and to make the world more just. And we said to ourselves, this is that moment. This time matters right now. And we went to the capital markets and raised some resources and were able to commit yesterday a billion dollars to supporting a truly equitable recovery. What that'll mean is more resources to expand testing and tracing and develop better tests and improve the science of how to apply them in America's K through 12 schools. It'll mean that we're able to invest in bringing green energy and solar power to the billion people on this planet that wake up every day and live in the dark without real access to electricity and therefore without a way to pull themselves up out of poverty and into the modern economy. These are solvable problems and our greatest moments as a nation, America has stood up and, and made big investments in its own infrastructure and marshaled a, a Marshall Plan to rebuild Western Europe after World War II. We can do this if we do it together and our billion dollar pledge and commitment is an extraordinary effort for us, uh, but it's, it's small in the big picture. We wanna work with others to, to make sure this recovery is equitable in its broadest sense. And I really have to encourage people to make a little plug to read the investment because I think the piece about electricity and how that translates to, you know, available internet access for economies, because if you're tech poor and disconnected, I really think that's going to be the definition of poverty and what, what holds people back today. Raj, I think we're all looking for a silver lining after the pandemic caused so much, you know, destruction for the vulnerable. And I think you make a good point that we're kind of at this inflection point and it's important to seize the moment um, and move forward in a much more equitable future. You know, I could go on for hours, but now we're going to hear um, from the authors of the report to talk about these new testing protocols. Raj Shah, president of Rockefeller Center uh, Foundation, excuse me. <laughs> so great to have you. Thank you, Elise. And I'm so glad that Mark and Caitlin are speaking next. They have a lot to offer this country if we just listen to what they have to say. Absolutely. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Eugene Scott, a political reporter for The Fix at The Washington Post. And joining me now are Dr. Mark McClellan, 
founding director of the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University, and Caitlin Rivers, a senior scholar at John Hopkins Center for Health Security. It's great to have you both. Welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. I was hoping you could talk to us uh, through the report you co-authored, a first of its kind, a risk assessment and testing on testing guidance that can be adapted to reflect the risk of COVID-19 in a school's community. Um, Dr. McClellan, what is the basic framework? Well, the basic framework, Eugene, fits in with what you all have just been talking about at this excellent event, about the need for a multi-pronged strategy to get schools open. It's so important for um, the development of our children, and it's also so important for the overall economic recovery. Testing is not the only component of that. It needs to go along with the other steps that have already been discussed, like uh, masks and face covering and uh, steps to mitigate the risk of spread in schools, like uh, dividers and better ventilation. But along with that, we think there's considerable evidence now that testing can make a big difference. And Eugene, the other thing that's changing is the availability of tests. Um, we've had some significant shortages during the course of the summer, especially the so-called laboratory or PCR tests that are used for detecting infections in people who are symptomatic. But there has been really important recent progress in making available um, much more widely the tests that can be used at the point of care, like that uh, Abbott test that was referenced earlier, the federal government has started purchasing. We expect the supply of those tests to keep increasing to the point that more Americans can get the kind of ongoing testing support as one component of staying safe and the important things that they need to do, uh, just like uh, the NBA and sports leagues have done, just like uh, universities are, are starting to do if they have resources. It's really important now to get support out, like through what the Rockefeller Foundation has advocated uh, in terms of a national strategy supported by the federal government to make these kinds of uh, supports for safe reopening available to many, many more uh, public school districts, uh, other uh, high-risk settings that don't have the resources on their own. Uh, the report lays out how to get there, how we're going to develop evidence, hopefully quickly, on which approaches to testing work best in collaboration with these other steps to enable a lot more progress on school reopening than we've seen so far. Regarding school uh, reopenings, Dr. Rivers, can you talk to us a bit about why preventing transmission in school populations is so important? We have seen recently that children are less likely than adults to require hospitalization, but uh, there certainly have been a rise in infections among school-aged children in some states uh, recently. That's right. Thankfully, children are at lower risk of severe illness than adults, but low risk is not zero risk, and it is possible for children to develop severe infection. And we don't know a lot about what the long-term consequences of infection in children are, and so there's still reason to be concerned, even though our level of concern might not be as high for adults. But I think it's important to note, too, that schools are not just places where children go. They are also workplaces for adults. And children also, uh, after they return from school, go home to families who may be vulnerable to infection. And so it's important that we think about schools as, uh, as waypoints to prevent transmission in the community at large. 
we need to be thinking about all of the vulnerable people in our communities and schools are really connected to all of those people. And so we need to be thoughtful about how we reopen and what, what tools we use to mitigate the risk of transmission in school buildings. Dr. McClellan, going back to the report, for, for those who aren't familiar with public health or reports of this nature, why is this collaborative risk assessment so vital for tackling this kind of public health crisis? Well, Eugene, it's important that the approaches that we take are based on the best evidence and the best science that we have. And what we did in this report under uh, Dr. Rivers' leadership and uh, in collaboration with some of her colleagues was review the evidence that is available now. And it's, it's limited, but it's getting better on how to minimize risk in school settings and how to use testing as a key part of that approach. So the risk assessment includes several kinds of important considerations. Uh, one very important one, as uh, Raj Shah mentioned earlier, is just how prevalent is COVID in the neighborhoods where the the school staff and the students are coming from. That's a big determinant of how likely there is to be an outbreak and kind of how much uh, testing you might want to do. Uh, we also look at the importance of these other mitigation measures uh, like distancing in schools, the other resources that can go into along with testing, uh, reducing the risk of spread. Uh, and of course, we wanna pay attention to the quality of the tests. Uh, the tests are getting much better so that we can actually think about doing large scale testing in schools and other at-risk settings in the United States that have been challenging to reopen so far, especially with as much COVID in the community uh, as we have in, in many parts of the U.S. now. But it's important to learn more about how exactly the tests are going to work. And our report describes relying on some of these uh, rapid, inexpensive point-of-care tests, which are not perfect, but when used regularly can really help detect outbreaks early if there's a significant risk. And they can be used in conjunction with some follow-up tests and some steps to manage people who do test positive to get them out of the, the stream of transmission to confirm that there really are infections there. So this is all part of an overall risk assessment and, and strategy for uh, using testing effectively to reopen schools. I would like to bring in uh, an audience question and hopefully Dr. Rivers, you can answer this one. It's from JB Holston from Washington, DC. And he wants to know why haven't we funded fast, frequent, asymptomatic testing for all, at least for all school kids to guarantee school reopening. It has worked in the case of the NBA. I completely agree with the sentiment that fast, readily available testing can be a really important strategy for making otherwise high-risk settings and activities safe. I think the good news is that we will start to see more of those products come in the market in the coming months. There's already a few tests that are available, but more will be coming with high production volumes, so they will hopefully actually be available, and they'll be quite cheap to administer. And so I think we are moving in that direction, and I think the sooner that we can better understand how best to use these tests, when they perform best, when it might be better to use a different test. I think that those are the gaps in evidence that we're hoping to fill in to really realize that vision of using frequent testing to get people back into the community and back to engaging in school and other high priority activities. So when we look at uh, the pilot cities that were chosen for your research, they seem pretty 
diverse. There's Tulsa and Los Angeles, New Orleans, uh, Louisville, and, and the state of Rhode Island, uh, more than one city, obviously. Uh, can you give us some ideas about how these places were chosen? Well, I'll, I'll start and, uh, and can turn to Dr. Rivers as well. Um, these were states that, as you said, Eugene, we did choose to aim for some diversity in settings, the types of, uh, you know, how urban these areas are, uh, the types of approaches that the schools are taking to reopening and to different strategies to support reopening. And these are also districts that volunteered, that, that wanted to get out in front and thinking about how to use some of these rapid tests in conjunction with the other strategies to reopen effectively. And within the areas, the different schools are taking somewhat different approaches to get going. Uh, for many of the school districts, this is a, a step at a time process. You know, they're not implementing a, a big uh, city or district-wide program everywhere right away. They're starting on a limited basis and, and expanding it out. Um, some areas are testing how the new tests compare to ones that have been used more widely, those lab tests that are uh, not uh, nearly as fast and can't be reported as easily. Uh, other school districts are focusing on a, a couple of schools that want to try regular repeat testing on an ongoing basis to see how it goes and then use that experience to help other schools learn. Uh, as Dr. Rivers emphasized, with more tests becoming available and with this strong commitment, you just heard about from the Rockefeller Foundation to help get those tests to schools, this partnership with the Department of Health and Human Services to provide uh, more of these tests. Uh, we hope that these pilots can not only report some useful results and experience soon, but can also help with uh, providing good examples of how to uh, expand these out. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, I think, is very committed to larger scale testing across uh, uh, multiple states, across multiple districts, uh, to make as rapid progress as we can. Dr. Rivers, do you think any of these findings could be applicable uh, to other settings beyond schools, like maybe businesses or faith communities? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that they absolutely can. I think we are already starting to see that settings like the NBA and other sports leagues that have already implemented rapid repeat testing are getting good results. And I think the more that we learn, the more we can extend those findings to other settings. Now, there are some tricky considerations that may require some tweaks. So nursing homes, for example, are higher risk settings because the people in nursing homes are particularly vulnerable to severe illness. And so you might want to take that into account when you're designing a screening program. You might want to choose a more accurate test, for example. But I think once we start to grow the base of evidence, we can explore those different customizations and make sure that we are getting the right tests in the right setting and that we are really designing our programs to, to meet the objectives of reopening and keeping people safe and healthy. So, Dr. McClellan, like what what type of timeline are we looking at here uh, when we are trying to figure out how definitive these findings can be? The uh, pilot tests are, are going on now, and we hope, as Dr. Rivers said, that we'll be able to provide some early insights from their initial experience soon. Obviously, it takes more time to do a really careful, detailed uh, analysis, but 
with more schools starting to use testing with experience from other settings like universities and sports leagues, uh, uh, many high schools are, that have already restarted their sports programs are doing regular testing in, the, in those settings now too. So I think you're gonna see, Eugene, a, a steady stream of additional evidence. It's, is it all gonna be perfect and definitive right away? Probably not. Are we gonna be able to get better uh, based on the growing experience around the country and using testing to support school reopening? I, I think so. And again, I'd point back to the Rockefeller Foundation's efforts to share these kinds of learnings. Uh, the foundation is supporting a network of cities and now a growing network of states that are all coming together because they need to solve these problems for their own populations. And since we haven't worked out the details yet, uh, this kind of uh, public-private collaboration is a, a very good way to accelerate progress. So I, I just suggest staying tuned uh, to reports coming out of the foundation about these topics uh, and to reports that I think many of the cities that are implementing these steps will be making uh, regularly as part of their efforts to reopen and, and hopefully get ahead of um, uh, the uh, the next semester of school after uh, after the end of year holidays. You know, I know different cities and states have various challenges when it comes to the pandemic, but Dr. Rivers, do you think uh, there is one like particular priority that the federal government should focus on regarding safely reopening schools? I think there's two categories of things that I would emphasize. The first is providing technical support. It is a technical topic to think about how to reopen these schools in a pandemic. It's something we've never really done before. And so I think the more technical support we can provide to schools and districts to think through those questions and identify strategies that will be effective and that will work in their context, the better. And I think the second big pillar is around funding. These interventions that we talk about with masks and testing and distancing, they all require resources. And those resources are coming at a time when districts are facing severe budget crises as, um, as the economy is faltering and as uh, families are sometimes choosing not to send their schools, their children back to schools rather. And so I think the federal government has a really important role to play in making sure that schools have what the money that they need to implement these mitigation measures and to get children back in the classroom safely. Those are the two big points that I see. I would love to hear from both of you on this. Uh, do you believe there should be a federal mandate for mask wearing, given how much research we have uh, showing how effective masks are in preventing the spread of coronavirus? Um, Eugene, especially now with so much spread in so many parts of the country, I think this is something that would really help with getting more attention and have an impact on uh, spread. Uh, we've seen in states that implement mandates or even local areas, uh, counties, et cetera, uh, it does have a significant impact on spread. And at least while cases are surging right now, this would be a, a good way to remind Americans that there are proven steps they can take when they go out and they're interacting with others uh, to help reduce the risk of spread. Uh, we're at a very challenging time in the pandemic right now with cases surging to the highest levels we've seen in the US, hospitalizations going up in many parts of the country, uh, death rates starting to increase. Um, this is a very challenging time as we head into winter. So it's, uh, I think it's time for some more support for um, mask use. 
I agree with Dr. Dr. McClellan. I think we are seeing a serious resurgence throughout the country. We have strong evidence that masks help to protect others and weaker, but I think still um, substantial evidence that they can even protect the wearer. And so I think with that in mind, there's no reason not to do as much as we can to promote mask wearing within the community. And I think that should include mandates, but it should also include community engagement and making sure that people really have the resources to implement this, which might mean um, providing masks or making sure that people have access to masks and also just talking to them about why it's important and why we need to do it, not just for ourselves, but also for others. Awesome. I really appreciate both of you all sharing your thoughts uh, with us today and taking time out to educate our viewers on uh, your upcoming project, which we all will be keeping our eyes uh, open for. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Eugene. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.